and good morning everyone or good afternoon or good evening depending upon where you are on this rotating globe welcome to another and i mean it exciting edition of the other side of midnight we have so many interesting mysteries to lay out for you tonight as well as the further planning for our major february 4th event where we are going to transmit to someone <clears throat> not from here quoting a uh, friend of mine uh from stonehenge from the center of stonehenge and the aubrey circle and other geometries um over a period of about an hour on the morning at about eight o'clock local british time um next saturday next friday next friday morning and then saturday night we're going to compile as much as we can reasonably analyze in the period of time that would be uh, intervening um, and kind of show you and tell you and play for you some of the stuff that we get if we get anything i mean we don't know that we're going to get anything because this is the first time as far as i know that what we're trying to do has ever been done and we will describe in great length this morning again for those of you who are new to the program and i know there are new listeners because i can see it in the numbers we're going to describe for you what it is we're doing, how we got to where we are, and um, where we're going to where we're going to go with this. Because technically speaking, we're not quite sure who we're talking to, and there's been a stunning new mainstream entry into the mystery, which David opened the door to, and then at something like five o'clock this morning. I had one of those major research aha moments where it was, oh my God, look at that. And we're going to show you the that later in the program, and I guarantee it will be as much an aha for all of you as it was, was for me. Because when I shared it with David, he had the precisely appropriate reaction like, oh my God, look at that. Before we get to all of that, I want to direct all you new folks to the other side of midnight website uh not quite sure how you're listening you can listen um on the url which is the other side of midnight.com you can listen on blog talk on talk stream uh i don't know offhand the other ways you can listen but there are a plethora of those ways anyway if you're listening and you're not on the website you want to go to the other side of midnight.com that's our url click on that Click on tonight's banner, which says rather um, aggressively, Talking to Ancient Extraterrestrials Part 2, with astonishing new information on Tonga. Yes, we have some amazingly cool, and if I must say so myself, insightful new news about Tonga. We also have something that's incredibly interesting and highly relevant that's about 4,000 light years away from the Earth, away from the solar system, toward the center of the galaxy we're going to talk about, which turns out, by the numbers, to be part of this entire ET conversation. And, um, I mean, this is going to be cool. This is one of those shows that you're going to look back and you're just going to say, how could it get much cooler than that? So, you're at the website. You're looking at the uh, banner. Open hailing frequencies. Talking to ancient extraterrestrials. Part 2. Click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page. And right under it, you'll see um, fast links to items. Click on my name. And you'll see that we've got um, first two items relate to Hubble. I'm sorry, Web. See, I'm so used to saying Hubble for... Years and years and years and years. The Webb Space Telescope. A few days ago, they successfully reached the L2 position. And they fired the onboard thrusters to accelerate. Now, you might say, why didn't they fire to slow down? Because the thrusters were on the wrong side of the telescope. In order to slow down, they would have had to turn the entire telescope 180 degrees, which, of course, would completely below the reason for the five-layer solar blanket, the sun shield that they deployed a couple of weeks ago. 
So they deliberately underperformed with the rockets, the uh, uh, Ariane, you know, five rocket and the mid-course correction so that when they got close to the destination, this region of space behind the Earth, about a million miles behind the Earth away from the sun, called L2 for Lagrange, who was a French celestial mechanics expert who figured this stuff out centuries ago, they had to accelerate just a little bit to go into this halo orbit around this Lagrange point, um, which is a kind of a region, a center of, of space geometrically arranged uh, uh, right behind the Earth, um, looking away from the sun. And they will now orbit in the period of, I think it's like a month or so, it takes to complete this orbit. The orbit, the halo orbit, around this mythical point in space, this geometric point, is much larger, about four times larger, uh, well, maybe not four times, maybe two or three, than the orbit of the moon around the Earth. I mean, this is a very large halo, and there's uh, two or three other spacecraft that NASA has placed in this region in prior years, all of them telescopes that require them to be in constant view of the Earth, and um, in, in, a, in a region that was kind of stable, where you only need to tweak with the uh, thrusters every once in a while to remain in your halo orbit. And it will remain there for the life of the telescope, which now, based not just on the electronics, but mostly on the onboard fuel situation, they seem to be good to go, barring any unforeseen disasters, for the next 20 years in that orbit. And they will be in a position to constantly be sending via the very high-powered radio system on board with a new focused antenna they deployed a couple of days ago. Um, I think it's the K-band, which is above S-band. Very high frequency, high bandwidth. They are, will be in 24-7 continuous communication between the telescope and the Earth. Now, you might ask, kind of, you know, academically, if it's a million miles away in deep space, orbiting in this huge halo orbit, how long does it take for a signal from Webb to get to Earth, and how long do commands from Earth take to get to Webb? Given that it's about four times the distance of the Earth-Moon system, meaning it's four times the distance of the moon, uh, and the moon is about one and a quarter light seconds away, it's easy. The one-way radio wave uh, slash light speed travel time from web to earth or earth to web is about five seconds. That's a very long distance call, but not as far away as, you know, like 20 minutes to Mars or 15 minutes to Venus, depending on which side of the sun it's on, or an hour to Jupiter, um, or two hours to Saturn. You know, in other words, it's literally, Webb is literally in our backyard, literally in the backyard of the Earth. And it's going to do astonishing things. So for the next several months, you will hear reports and you'll be able to read them weekly in our item number one. They are now going to be tuning the mirrors. How do you tune a mirror? Well, remember, this is not one huge 22-foot wide primary mirror reflecting telescope. It's composed of 18 sub-mirrors in the shape of hexagons that are paraboloids. They're all perfectly curved to be little telescopes in and of themselves. A little telescope with a four-foot wide mirror Oh my God, my first reflecting telescope had a six-inch wide mirror. Anyway, um, what they need to do is to tilt and pan and focus each of these sub-telescopes, all 18, so that they ultimately all converge as one super mirror, primary mirror, 22 feet, give or take, wide, focused on the secondary, which will then reflect the light down into the uh, t 
telescope itself into the electronics to where uh, the uh, instrumentation is located. And all of this will take about uh, three months to do all these corrections. We know all the actuators work. We know all the motors work. In fact, if you go to item number one, you'll read a blog um, update from the uh, project manager of the entire Webb telescope system. And he even has some lyrical quotes there from a very famous uh, uh, line of poetry. So that is worth reading. Number two is simply a where is web. It kind of is a nuts and bolts version of tracking where web is. There's a new 3D solar system model that will allow you to see physically in a computer animation what I described verbally for all you folks on radio. So that's kind of moving in the right direction as situation on Earth is going in very weird directions. We're going to talk tomorrow night with Dr. Richard Spence, who's our uh, resident historian, about the background to Ukraine. What is going on with Ukraine? Well, don't get me started. It's incredibly controversial. It's confusing. It's got personalities. It's got geopolitics. It's got money. It's got pipelines. It's got... It's a mess, but tomorrow night, for three hours, Richard will help us sort it out. And I guarantee you, as Stephanie Rule says um, every morning, that after you listen to Richard tomorrow night for three hours, you will be, at least about Ukraine, smarter. I know that I will be, so I'm looking forward to that. Item number three in Radio with Pictures and my items. Um, right now, as we're enjoying really amazing weather here in the great American Southwest. There is a major blizzard working its way up the east coast of the United States. Thousands of flights have been canceled. Something like 10 million people have been uh, put under blizzard warnings all up and down the east coast from like Washington north through Nova Scotia. Um, item number three is a kind of an updated link so you can take a look and see um, what's happening if you have relatives or friends, family, you know, uh, anyone you care about on the East Coast, uh, you might want to check in with them and make sure that they're warm, they're dry, they're staying home. Being on the roads during a blizzard is nuts. I lived in New England for many, many, many years um, as a kid growing up, and, you know, kids love snowstorms. They They have no idea of how dangerous a real blizzard can be, especially when you still have, as we still do, centralized power with huge power plants and, you know, high tension grids and, you know, feeder lines and, you know, utility poles outside homes. I mean, we need to get onto the hyperdimensional physics, you know, something the size of a bread box in everybody's basement, including apartment houses. So we, you know, decentralize this grid nonsense. Uh, even the uh, uh, potential upgrades to the grid, which are part of the uh, infrastructure bill that passed a couple of months ago in the House and the Senate and was signed by the president, it's it's just reinforcing the kind of status quo grid. It's upgrading it, but it's not radically changing it. Um, that's to come in the future if and when this physics uh, is finally revealed which kind of elegantly takes me to item number four. Item number four is about Tonga, and there is a stunning animation that uh, Kantia helped uh, put up on the page tonight, so you can actually see this satellite image, this Japanese satellite that recorded in real time the eruption of the um, material from the floor of the sea uh, at the surface of the ocean and this extraordinary shock wave racing out in all directions uh, at the speed of sound. It was so intense that it's uh, literally visible there in, the, um, in that incredibly interesting color satellite image. Number four, I'm sorry, number five is another animation. We couldn't get that one uh, to work on the page, so you just click on the link. That is a enhanced global view from, I believe, one of the GOES satellites, um, uh, which is uh, in orbit due to NOAA, 
the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, which is kind of like the wet NASA, as they used to call it. That is an e even more stunning image because with some enhancement, you can see the triple shockwave from Tonga's eruption racing across the entire Pacific Ocean and across the east, I'm sorry, the west coast of the United States and South America. And it's a, it's, it's, it's a loop. You can see it when you click on the link again and again and again. The energy in this event was stunning. In fact, that takes us to item number six. Scientists, geologists, geophysicists, meteorologists, all those people that look at the Earth, they are totally baffled by the fury and the nature of the Tonga explosion. I know we've talked about this on the show, and I know the mainstream news is talking about it as an underwater volcano that's kind of just blew its top. Oh, no. It is so much more. And oddly enough, it is directly relevant to what we're going to be talking about tonight vis-a-vis -vis ET communications and the numbers. It all comes back to the numbers, which leads me to item number seven. Number seven. Um, a few days ago, Nature, which is the preeminent uh, scientific journal for scientists all over the planet, published, I think it was on the 26th, a paper from a group of radio astronomers, the lead scientist who is an Australian radio astronomer um, with the first name Natasha. I think her second name is Hurley Wright, I think. And we'll correct that as we get through the program if I'm, you know, getting that wrong. Back in 2018, in January, this is now 2022, back in 2018, the Murchison Array, which is a very large array of radio telescopes, literally in the middle of nowhere in the outback of Australia, listening to low frequency, as astronomers define it, uh, radio emission. It's, it's a unique facility in that literally, in a very brief period of time, like you know a few days, it can map the entire sky in these low frequency uh, wavelengths uh, in the megahertz range. Radio astronomers consider low frequencies um, uh, megahertz, which is an interesting uh, detail. Anyway, back in January of 2018, as they were doing this survey of these low frequency radio sources all over the sky, they picked up something really, 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 really weird. And as you can see there from the headline, mysterious energy source unlike anything astronomers have seen before. Well, well, science moves on. So they watched and they recorded and they watched and they recorded. And for three months, this thing, every 18.18 minutes, that's 18.18 minutes, like a, like a lighthouse would light up locally with radio energy that was picked up by this r array of radio telescopes in Australia um, for about a minute. And it would become brighter than almost any other source, bar two or three, in the entire what astronomers call the radio sky. And then it would go away. And 18.18 minutes later, bingo, there it was again for about a minute. This went on and on and on, day and night, day and night, for a little over three months. And then it disappeared and has never been heard from again. And if you read the story, which you can click on that link, and we're going to talk a great deal about some of the background physics, it is weird. It's wonderfully, wonderfully, wonderfully weird. But that's not the best part. The best part is, due to the um, uh, intrepid, courageous outreach by one of our guests tonight, David Sarita, he actually got in touch with Natasha, the lead astronomer doing the survey, and she and he have been exchanging emails back and forth with additional information. Um, and have we got some surprises for you there. So without further ado, let me introduce who is on the show tonight.
We have David Sarita, who was our numbers guy. Um, David, of course, uh, has been working with sacred frequencies and, um, you know, sacred geometry and all kinds of uh, very elaborate mathematical and geometric systems for most of his professional life. He knows how to do these number calculations in his sleep, and um, he has turned up some really remarkable things. Now, I'm going to give an abbreviated you know, bio on each of our guests, because if you want to go to the actual biographies, again, you go to the other side of midnight.com, click on the banner for tonight for Saturday, June, uh, July, uh, July. I'll get this right. January, don't get ahead of yourself, Hoagland, January 29th, that's tonight. Click on uh, that banner that takes you to the guest page. Under the banner on the guest page, you will see fast links to bios. So each of the bios of our guests tonight is listed there. Um, not in any particular order. We have Maria Wheatley back with us. Maria, in less than a week now, is going to be conducting the next phase of our Open Hailing Frequencies experiment, literally from the center of Stonehenge. She is a dowser, second-generation dowser. Um, her late father was a... Uh, 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 a dowser of the first rate. In fact, he was a guest on the show right at the beginning of The Other Side of Midnight, and that's how we were so, uh, uh, shall we say, um, gratified to find Maria uh, taking his place and, and then some, and she has been an incredibly interesting guest over the years uh, that we've been talking to her about uh, ancient monuments all over Britain and beyond. Um, in addition to Maria, we have Jonathan Womack, who is a um, computer specialist. He does incredible animations. Um, he also uh, is a writer. He's got some really interesting books out there. You can find them by going to his bio on the uh, guest page, and you'll see various uh, uh, links to his work, including something he has called the OBE Show, the out-of-body experience show because John is an experiencer. He routinely takes journeys out of body and we've had him on discussing some of what he has encountered uh, over the past several years. Uh, moving on down, uh, Ron Gerbron is with us. Ron is our resident generalist. He knows something about almost everything and this afternoon we got into a bit of a, uh, a kind of a tit-for-tat regarding one of my pet peeves, which is people in the mainstream, commentators, columnists, news people, reporters, editorialists, anchors, everybody, misusing the word fulsome. Now, we are not going to go there tonight, but, you know, he and I kind of had an interesting uh, discussion about the misuse, the gross, overwhelming misuse in the mainstream of the very simple concept of fulsome like fulsome praise. It's not what most people think when they're saying it. They're using it totally, totally wrong. And I frankly can't understand why, because someone should um, should correct someone and it should kind of get around the circle. We have things called texts and emails these days. And we have uh, Thomas Mathers with us. Thomas is an award-winning uh, producer. He writes music. He produces music. He also is intimately familiar, having spent many years in Ecuador with ancient geometry, ancient sacred sites, native um, uh, traditions, and has brought his expertise in production and technology to bear on some of the return messaging we've been getting from the uh, Amuamua broadcasts, and he has some new material to share with us tonight. Plus, he's kind of the backbone of setting up the technology with Keith Morgan for how we're going to do the next phase, uh, phase two of what we're all involved in next week. And now last but not least, Michael Hill is with us. And the reason that I've invited Michael back is because I want to loop back to the beginning. How did we wind up doing broadcasts on the frequencies we've chosen to Oumuamua? What do they open up in terms of sacred geometry and uh, uh, sacred measurements and an entree to the physics, the same physics which ultimately 
is going to be, I believe, the explanation for Tonga. Wait till you see. As well as this new mysterious, bizarre radio source 4,000, give or take, light years away. Michael is an award-winning musician. He's a filmographer. He's had UFO experiences for years, and he's been incorporating these cosmic harmonic frequencies into his music, as well as into an actual piece of hyperdimensional technology, which according to some of the sources that I uh, turned him on to, measurably, physically, in terms of laboratory data, actually works. So, um, let me see. Uh, what I'm going to do is I want everyone to come on and say hi, and if you have anything that's really burning on your minds uh, before we get to the substance of tonight, now is the time. we got about four minutes till the bottom of the hour, so let me start by introducing David. Yeah, hi. Good. Hi, everybody. Um, it's really an incredible, auspicious day today. There's a lot going on <laughs> in the world. You are the master of understatement, Mr. Sarita. Okay, Thomas, <laughs> are you here? I sure am. And Maria? Yes, hello. Oh, crystal clear. Uh, Michael? I am here, and thank you for having me, and hello, everybody. As my grandmother used to say, it's nice being had. John? Mm -hmm. Yes, we have two musicians on the show tonight. I find that very cool. Actually, we have more. Remember, I do have that background on Columbia Records. Anyway, um, and last but not least, Ron, are you with us? Uh, yes. You need and to speak up just Richard, a tad. Oh, Richard, guess what? Uh, you're fading away. Hello? You're really fading I'm having trouble with it. Oh, there we are. There we are. Okay. Can you hear okay. me? Now we hear you loud. Okay. Five uh, the, Yeah. The, there's a guess what? The word fulsom in an American dictionary <clears throat> has a secondary lesser meaning of uh, overwhelming. It's a contextual thing. But the English dictionaries, which you would think should get first shot at, uh, don't have that option there. It's confusing. So they, it means faith. It is. They, Giving someone fulsome praise, well, most people don't. Obviously, most mainstream people who go to Harvard and Yale and Caltech and wherever and have huge paying jobs with millions of dollars per year, they don't know fulsome means fake praise, not real, not full, not encompassing. Well, excessive. And, 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 and they use it overwhelmingly again and again and again in the totally wrong way and for me it's like fingers on a blackboard ah anyway we are at the bottom of the hour see how that elegantly took up two minutes um so what we'll do when we Good come job. back um david and i are going to spring on you um actually no we're not going to do that nope nope we're going to start with michael because i want to start with you know as the lawyers say build foundation michael is kind of the reason we're doing what we're doing. And so I want him to stand up there and take the credit or the blame and describe to us the mysteries of 432. So without further ado, let me just tell everyone that you are literally on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we are embarking on an extraordinary journey, a voyage beyond. And in this case, the voyage appears to have a stop out there tonight, like 4,000 light years from the Earth. Because as you're going to see, and maybe hear, someone 4,000 light years away appears to know what we know tonight here on Earth in the form of ET radio communication. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
it's funny because I think, you know, I went through my crazy phase where I made mistakes before the internet and before social media and before any of this. Whereas now you can't do that. There's no such thing. So like you're saying about black and white and what it does is it stops people expressing themselves. People are too frightened. It's like, you know, I want to say something, but if, what if I use the wrong term? But I remember a story a couple of years ago where Benedict Cumberbatch, who at the time was a darling in the media's eyes, was complaining about the disparity between the treatment of um, black actors and of white actors. And, and he was sticking up and saying, you know, they're not getting paid as well. They're not getting the jobs that they should be getting. And they're being, there is no equality. But what he said was, there isn't equality for colored actors. Well, you've said colored there, Benedict. You can't do that. And so they went for him and he was vilified and he had to come out and do a big apology. Now what it was, it was, it was a slip of the tongue. He's obviously not racist. He's actively trying to say that there is discrimination and he's trying to stick up for that community, but he was vilified and attacked. And that's what happens now. And so when people make their mistakes now, they make their mistakes on the internet. They make their mistakes on social media where they're screenshotted forever. And so I think that's all part of the conditioning that people are frightened. You know, if you're in a position where I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, in the end, you'll go, well, I won't say anything then. The fallout of this is going to be extraordinary with that because people don't realize, you know, when you, 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 you're phoning up the police and grassing on your neighbors and when all this ends, they're still going to be your neighbors and you're still going to have to live next door to them. And good luck with that. Hello, everyone. My name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Kinthea, Timothy and Anetta. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight. Well, that was a movie from decades ago, a brilliant movie, Richard Dreyfuss, and a whole cast of very interesting people, kind of some cameos by an old friend of mine, Alan Hynek, who appears at the very end of the film. It's about, obviously, humankind's first modern encounter with extraterrestrials and how the hailing frequencies between these two cultures were opened with secret, top secret, hidden, clandestine, deep space government efforts on the dark side of the moon at Devil's Tower in Wyoming. Now, you flash forward the film decades, and what's really bizarre is that we're involved now in the middle of something which when you put it through certain tone generators, sounds kinda like this. We have a translation airlock on their audio signal. We're taking over this conversation now.
It turns out, across decades, it's ultimately all about the frequencies. So, Michael, <clears throat> how did you get us as Laurel and Hardy? Another fine mess you've gotten me into. <laughs> well, uh, you know, going back to, let's say, probably around uh, 2008, being a musician, I had heard of uh, a subject called Verdi's A. Verdi was a musician and a scientist, and he started tuning his A note on his orchestras and all of his instruments to A equals 432 hertz. What people need to know is our musical uh, standard reference now is A equals 440 hertz. Interestingly enough, you find out that was done by a Nazi uh a scientist, and I think that they knew what they were doing um, with new science. It's about the most disharmonious uh, frequency that they could have chose. But anyhow, I thought this was interesting. So right at, you know, uh, in 2008 is when I also was taken into the fold of uh, the reverse engineering division and remote viewers for the NSA. So one of the first things I asked them was, you know, uh, what about this 432 stuff? And uh, he had put me, this is, I'm talking about the leader of this group. His name was A.R. Borden. And to Wingmakers fans, he was known as 15. And that was just, he was the 15th person to hold that position. It was nothing other than that. But he had put me into contact with a musician within their group. And we'll just call him Mr. Price. And uh, he was a really great musician. But one thing he said really stuck with me. And he said, I don't even know how you guys can keep keep your instruments in tune when you're tuned to 440. I was like, what, what's that about, you know? Uh, but simultaneously then, uh, in late 2008, is when I met the Anunnaki. Uh, and because of that, uh, that's why, you know, all this contact started with the reverse engineering team as well. And um, the AR Borden said, during this course of concentration, you're going to learn about cosmic harmonious frequencies. He said, you see, to create matter, you need specific frequencies. 432, obviously. But not only do you need specific frequencies, you need specific frequencies in combination, which would be a chord or a note. And this was in 2008. I, I didn't crack the code until 10 years later. But uh, that's how it all started for me. And then after that, what happened was I met the Anunnaki in 2008, and as crazy as it seems, they told me we were once known as the Anunnaki in your past. And you okay, were once my, known. Michael, hang on, hang on. For those mm -hmm. who are just joining us, who may have been under a rock for the last 20, 30, 40 years, never cracked Sitchin, who are the Anunnaki? Well, I guess you could, many names, right? The Elohim, the Watchers, the Shining Ones. They were the ones that were uh, spoken of in the Sumerian clay tablets pre-Egypt. You know, their stories written in stone, and it's just our history. And for some reason, it seems like it's been kept from humanity up until ancient aliens. Um, that's interesting, though, because when I met them, at the end of our conversation, uh, the individual I was speaking with, who turned out to be Marduk of the Anunnaki, he said, well, it must be time for... Uh, mankind to know this and i said well how are you going to start revealing this you know and um ancient aliens started the next year mm. and up up until that point no one knew what the so, Anunnaki was well not no one but a very tiny, well, tiny did, handful out of seven billion people okay so yeah. the anunnaki they're not aliens they're not bug-eyed monsters they're not eight-legged or armed octopi that have intelligence. In other words, they're basically, they look like us, they talk like us, they appear like us, they appear to be very, very, very advanced humans, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Which means, in my model, they are family. I totally agree. They agree. Um, 
that was one of the big dividing uh, dividing factors within the Anunnaki family because some of us, some of them on Inky's side, which we can get into that, um, they were very, they looked at us as family. But some of the other side of the family viewed humanity as never going to step up into our I am, never going to step into our sovereignty, and we would always give our energy and our you know sovereignty away to illusionary outside sources and always misuse our power over others, ourselves, and this planet. And so that those two different outlooks is what makes up the conflict within the family. And a lot of people think when you talk about the Anunnaki, you know, I know a lot of people have thrown them under the proverbial bus of the ones behind all the problems and all the secret societies. But what you'll find is Inky's side, um, now with scientific data, is intertwined into the Native American First Nations. Specifically, um, the listeners can Google haplogroup X2A, which is a DNA uh, bloodline. That you, was just might, found... you might want to spell that. Uh, haplogroup is H-A-P-L-O-G-R-O-U-P, haplogroup, and then dash X2A. And what you'll find is haplogroup X2A is only in 3% of the Native American First Nations. But when you travel back in time, you'll find more haplogroup X2A in the giant skeletal remains that have been removed out of these mound builder sites. Then if you keep going further back in time, where you find the highest concentration of haplogroup X2A, it's going to tell you where it came from, right? Well, it's the hills of Galilee, um, you know, lost tribe of Israel, the Sangreal, Holy Grail. So it's, a, so it's a Semitic genetic pattern that shows up in the Middle East. Yes, and it's very interesting because this throws our history books upside down because <laughs> that bloodline did not enter through any migration route of normal, what we consider normal migration. And this is just all science, you know, and that's Luckily, I guess uh, that's been thrown in my lap, and I'm in the middle of revealing this reality to the world. Um, I was gifted a flash drive by Zachariah Sitchin, and it took me down a rabbit hole, but what was contained in that flash drive was some artifacts. And here, at the time of his passing, he was tracking down the Anunnaki human hybrid bloodline into the Native American First Nations. And uh, there were some artifacts on the flash drive that are now known as the Michigan artifacts. And it tells the migration of this bloodline. And it's very interesting because, again, a lot of people put the Anunnaki under the proverbial bus of, you know, the bad guys. But uh, you find out Inky's side intertwined into the Native American First Nations. And uh, Well, you know, people... Michael, that the worst fights in, our, in history, in human history are always within families. Yes, yeah. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of info. We could probably do a whole show just on that, <laughs> so we'll, we could do that in the future. And we will. Um, but what happened was, um, because I met them, and I'm talking in the flesh, I went to a festival called Sirius Rising in New York and uh, met an individual who Marduk was coming through, and you're the only person on the planet that I've actually disclosed who that is, and he's a high-ranking member of NASA. was part of the Apollo missions and the technology uh, acquisition group, and uh, he's the one that Marduk spoke to me through. And um, so that started this communication, and they told me, we were once known as the Anunnaki in your past, and you were once known as Ia Inki, the water bearer. And mind you, that made no sense to me whatsoever because I didn't even know what an Anunnaki was, so I sure didn't know what a water bearer is, you know. It's like someone came up to you and go, hey, by the way, you're the Easter Bunny. Hope you know that. You know, like, well, all right. But uh, sure enough, now because of, you know, you arranging for NASA to look into my work and finding it does resurrect and revitalize dead municipal tap water back into living water, I can look someone in the eye now and go, guess what? I am the water bearer, <laughs> you know? Would you like to see the scientific data? But anyhow, 
none of this made any sense to me back in 2008. So early 2009, I put out a request to these beings and I said, listen, if you are who you say you are and I am who you say I am, encode the name Ia Inky into a crop circle. And I can tell you, I will take notice. I'm a student of the subject and that'll be my confirmation that you are who you say you are and I am who you say I am. Now, how did you communicate this? Mentally? Uh, telepathically. Okay. I've learned, I'm an avid uh, meditator and also learned a lot of, you know, um, visualization, you know, meditation techniques. Okay. And um, so this was, you know, early 2009 and a year went by, no magic crop circle. First of all, I got to say, when I asked them to encode the name Ia Inky into a crop circle, my next thought was, what a silly request. Can you imagine like a big crop circle showing up and it just says Inky in cursive? <laughs> it looks like a big birthday cake, you know? <laughs> like, well, what's that going to do, you know? But then I got cocky. I was like, well, figure it out, man. If you are who you say you are, encode it in a cool way. And while you're at it, encode it with something only I would be able to decode. And I just left it at that. Well... In the two years that it took, because what what happened, and I didn't foresee this, is crop circles began to be used by them as almost like a chalkboard in our classroom that was guiding me into understanding cosmic harmonious frequencies. And um, in that two years, though, from 2009 until 2011, when that first crop circle showed up, by the way, I should have said um, in the notes of, you know, for other side of midnight, I have a very detailed long list of the crop circles that were used in the communication and everything that was uh, revealed and in depth. And we won't get into all that because it's just too much, but uh, it's cool to have it in a new place because, you know, I lost my website recently. I had to really fight to get it back and prove I am Michael Lee Hill, which was ridiculous. And, um, but it's nice to have it safeguarded. But anyhow, during that two years before that crop circle showed up, I started learning this uh, art form of creating what was called Pleiadian healing discs, which was these quartz crystal glass creations that are, uh, have a copper wrap. And the idea was, to use sacred geometry within the quartz crystal and meaning, you know, use seed of life, flower of life, um, golden mean. You yeah. Know, and if, if people want to see what these look like, if they go to your part of the uh, uh, website where it says bios, Michael Lee Hill, there's mm -hmm. a, there's a very interesting picture of you holding one up. There are two links there. Take people to your website. You've got all kinds of amazing images of, of these this is an actual mechanical physical object you know a, a a a construct which somehow entrains through the geometry the frequencies of the torsion field and transmits it to other material objects most often water or fluids which contain water and again beverly rubick uh at my request did uh very detailed experiments and found however it's working, it's working. And you put water on one of these things, you let it sit there for 15, 20 minutes, an hour, and you drink it and interesting, positive things happen. Yeah. You know what she told me is, first of all, I asked, well, wait a minute. If there's no energy within the droplet of water, because they have the technology to look at the photonic light energy uh, within a droplet of water, and the fact of the matter is we've killed our water, municipal tap water, by fluoride, you know, chlorine, making it go down, you know, miles of pipe and then taking a right-hand turn. Uh, I said, well, wait a minute. If there's no energy, but now it looks like a, a supernova went off in the middle of this droplet of water, where is that extra energy coming from? So I specifically asked her, is it coming from our sun? Is it coming from our planets, the tectonic plates, the electromagnetic fields around the planets? And she said, no, it's coming from another dimension. <laughs> and that really toasted my noodle. Hyperdimensional physics, yes. Yeah, I'm like, well, 
never had to ask myself what's it mean to be drinking water that has energy from another dimension in it. But uh, so uh, what had happened was, you know, I, I learned how to make this art form. By the way, the, the individual I learned it from has now passed away, and I'm one of the only ones that know how to make these things. And um, I was doing them with sacred geometry like I was taught. And but the Anunnaki had guided me into cymatics, which is a new science of making frequency visible for the first time ever, you know, uh, something from nothing, you know, which is what happened. But anyhow, I had well, but cymatics is nothing more mysterious than creating standing wave patterns with these frequencies, these special frequencies as they interact, uh, yeah. like like musical, you know, chords and notes interact in, in any piece that you, you know, create. And then you freeze, literally, in a in a matrix, in this quartz disc, uh, this pattern. And then the pattern shapes the field around anything you put on the disc, including water, which then absorbs the pattern, you drink it, the water in your body absorbs the pattern, and thereby you balance your own frequencies relative to the field. Yeah. I'll tell you what happened is because, you know, I learned this art form of making these Pleiadian energy discs, but simultaneously I was learning about cymatics and I had tra tracked down every note of the musical scale tuned properly with the appropriate cymatic image. And um, like I said, in 2011, for real, that crop circle I asked them for appeared and it appeared in Perono, Italy, and uh, it it actually encoded the names Ia Inki around a seven-pointed star, and it did it in ASCII binary code. Mm. It's not debatable, you know. It's it's binary code. You decode it, and it's Ia space Inki. So this crop circle became very important to me because they, you know, I rung their phone and they answered back. And, um, <laughs> well, hang on a sec, because there's been a lot of controversy ever since they were first noticed in the modern era, back in the uh, in the 80s, I believe. Uh, yeah. Crop circles, simple ones, simple circles with dots, and then more complex geometries, and then these incredible tableaus of incredibly sophisticated geometry extending over like 1,500 feet. And then you have Doug and Dave, and you know the controversy was, well, who's doing this? Are they all just fakes? Is it some super advertising campaign uh, by somebody that's being very mysterious and arcane? Is it the deep state? Is it military satellites playing games between us, the Russians, the Chinese, the deep state that knows this physics? In other words, who was behind crop circles? And one of the leading contenders in my mind always was someone, friends of the human race, who basically, in a very uh, Star Trekian, you know, uh, prime directive sort of way, without revealing themselves, are trying to nudge into the conversation the underlying physics of reality itself in a very McLuhan kind of way. The medium is the message. The crop circles being geometry in the crops, in the life-giving essence, the torsion field biological consciousness interaction in a living form on Earth, crops, was basically McLuhan saying in the crop circles, the medium, the crops, are the message. This is why drinking this energized water works because we are nothing but manifestations of the torsion field in 3D. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Um... You know, I had made a disc out of that Ia Inky crop circle just because it was so important to me. But uh, before, um, uh, right when I got that disc done, I created the seven musical note set of every note of the musical scale but tuned properly. And the last disc I made was the A note tuned to 27 hertz. Um, because 27 is an octave of 432. It's four octaves below 
And um, by the way, as you're saying, people think maybe Doug and Dave went out there and made it. It's, <laughs> it's really uh, once you look into the subject, you know, it's really easy to tell man-made ones from from real ones. Real ones, the crop is still growing. Uh, it's not damaged. And if you get out there with boards on your feet, it kills the crop. And not only that, there's a lot of scientific. Um, well, there was there, that- there there was a biophysicist named Levengood. Yeah. who actually took crop samples from real circles, looked at them in the lab, and found there were energy changes in the crop that no amount of stomping around on a on a board could ever Not create. Not do it. <laughs> yes, indeed. Levin Good actually went to, there was a crop circle that showed up right near Serpent Mound in Ohio, not the UK. Ah. And that was one of the crop circles he took um, the uh, crop from and studied. And that's going to be become important in the future. But anyhow, what had happened was when I made the A note at 27 hertz, it made a perfect seven-pointed star. I'm sitting there looking at it going, why does this look so familiar to me? And two and two was not clicking that. I just created the Ea Inky crop circle disc, and it was based on a seven-pointed star. And wait, and you, that, you mean that the seven-point star appears when you when you play 27 hertz tones? Yeah, through okay. a, uh, a well, cinematic you know why, device. You know why that's important. The Actually, in, you brought it up. The entire of foundation of hyperdimensional physics is a classic geometric theorem created by a mathematician centuries ago, about a century ago, named uh, Schlafly. Uh, and it's called the 27 lines on the general cubic surface. And later in the show, you're going to see why the cubic surface is crucial to understanding everything we're talking about. Mm, Mind-blowing. Yeah, even scientifically, pump 27 hertz through a cymatic device and it produces a perfect seven-pointed star held in place by nothing but frequency. This isn't Photoshop. This isn't computer-generated. It's It's, a real... It's resonant standing waves. Yes. And uh, so... I couldn't figure out, though, why did this look so familiar? And after 10 minutes, it wasn't coming to me. So this voice is just like, let it go. You know, you'll figure it out. Okay, hang on. We're Mm -hmm. at the uh, top of the hour. Ah. The magic top of the hour. My guest this morning, my first guest, who's giving us some crucial background into how we picked the frequencies we picked, how David and Thomas have created the messages that Maria is going to transmit from Stonehenge how all of this interlocking ancient human hidden history hangs together and is going to be communicated to someone out there, maybe the folks that Michael met. All of that is coming up in the next uh, two hours of The Other Side of Midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports, We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm-hmm.